The preacher's job is a very unique job. I stand here today in this pulpit, moved by God, to show you something that I hope you can see. But I and of myself do not have the power to make you understand it. That power rests in God himself. The things that you need to know about God, the wisdom of God, as it were, is not something that man has intrinsic ability to understand. It is a very special kind of wisdom. And as we will see this morning, it is a wisdom that is far superior to anything our finite human minds can think up on our own. And so if you will, please turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to be looking at verses 6 through 9 today. God has raised up the Corinthian church from a highly pagan culture in a very secular city. The overarching theme of this whole book hinges on that fact. And as we see more and more of what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, that emphasis is going to become even more clear to us. Though there was no doubt many among them who were truly saved. They had several very serious problems that could all be traced back to the same root. Their new identity in Christ was being polluted. It was being polluted by the echoes of their former life that they lived apart from God, that they lived according to their own wisdom. And so these Corinthians needed to see themselves as holy because God had made them holy through salvation. They needed to act according to that new holy identity. One symptom of this worldly confusion was an overemphasis on worldly kinds of wisdom. Paul spent the better part of chapter 1 showing his brothers and his sisters in Corinth that compared to God's wisdom, man's wisdom is impotent. It has no power. Now in chapter 2, the Apostle Paul shifts the argument to show that the gospel of Jesus Christ is the wisdom of God and is worth pursuing. In the process, we will see some distinct ways that God's wisdom is superior to man's wisdom. And so this morning will by and large be a contrast and comparison between man's wisdom and the godly wisdom, which is so much more superior to it. So we are in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We're going to begin with verse 6. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who loved him. Let's take a moment before we begin to break this passage down and really try to understand its pieces and how they synthesize together as a whole. Let's take a moment and ask God's direction and guidance as we open his word together. Lord, we are created beings. You are infinite. We are limited beings. There is nothing that can hold you back. Lord God, we are temporal beings. And yet, God, you exist outside of time. Time exists within you. And so, God, we appeal to you right now because your mind is so much greater than ours. But we also realize, Lord, that through Christ, we have the mind of Christ. We have been given eyes to see things that formerly we were blind to. And we ask right now, Lord God, that you would have an extended mercy upon us as we look at this passage of Scripture. 
and we consider what it meant to those Corinthian believers in its original context. And then as we, we widen the lens and we, we see how this affects us today in our own personal con- context and how we see the wisdom of God and its superiority to man, I pray, Lord God, that you would let our dependence fully rest upon you right now, that we would not try to make something of this passage that it is not. Any good thing in us is contingent upon our proximity to and love for you and the Son. And so, God, fill us with your Spirit right now. Help us to have joy in being guided and directed towards something that would seem unnatural to us in many ways. Lord, our wisdom often opposes your wisdom, and so we need to learn to bring it into subjection, that we might allow you to lead us, that we might submit and enjoy to the things you have prepared for us. So bless us, Lord God, and grow us according to your will and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. A few verses earlier, Paul addressed the content of God's superior wisdom. He said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30, And because of him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So we see there that the wisdom of God is personified in Christ himself and in his holy work. Jesus and his redeeming work are the content of godly wisdom. So here in chapter 2, Paul's going to expand this discussion in two more directions. He's going to highlight the nature and the source of God's wisdom. So this godly wisdom that we should pursue has many unique characteristics distinguishing it from the wisdom that man can attain on his own. Today's text will highlight five unique characteristics of godly wisdom. We see the first characteristic laid out very plainly in verse 6. Godly wisdom, unlike man's wisdom, is not temporary. It is not temporary. Unlike this age and its rulers, godly wisdom has always been and it will never be replaced by some greater wisdom. Paul shows this to the Corinthians by way of contrast. He tells them, it is not a wisdom of this age. Notice that word age. It shows up four different times in the passage we're studying today. It's not of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. So this worldly wisdom that man can try to attain to apart from God, there is some value to it, there is some usefulness to it, but it is a wisdom that passes away. It is incredibly inferior to the wisdom of God, which lasts forever. Solomon searched for fulfillment apart from God. We learned that in the book of Ecclesiastes. We talked at length about how the wisdom of man, when man seeks wisdom apart from the wisdom of God, It is like a vapor. And that word vapor is often translated vanity, but it also points to transition. It means it is something that is constantly changing and shifting. It is not stable and secure and eternal. Life on earth is like vapor. Man's wisdom, the things that we can come to by way of our own intellect and deduction, is like that vapor as well. Seems to have substance one moment, and then the next moment with new facts and new circumstances, everything seems to shift and change. How many things does man think he knows right now that in a matter of years we will realize we are seen completely wrong? As much as the man apart from God likes to glory in science and in the surety of science, as much as like man likes to assure himself that by the proper methods and approaches we've been able to really nail down what is true and what isn't, history tells us a different story. For over 2,000 years, 
One of the most basic and widely embraced methods of healing sickness among men was a technique called bloodletting. Have you ever read about this? Bloodletting is the practice of draining certain amounts of a person's blood out of their body. And it was done as a means of relieving them of what they believed to be toxins in the blood and bringing the human physiology back into some kind of proper balance. The Greek physician Hippocrates, you remember this guy, he is the guy upon which the Hippocratic Oath is based, who people who are going to practice medicine today still take that oath. Hippocrates wrote extensively about the practice and purpose of bloodletting. It was accomplished by either lancing the skin, making detailed cuts and letting the blood drain out, or by applying blood-sucking leeches to the skin in strategic areas of the body. If you think your kid doesn't like to go get shots, imagine trying to convince them, we got to go to the hospital so we can throw some blood-sucking leeches on you and make this better, right? Not going to happen. This was prescribed to solve such problems as the flu, infections, even mental illness was thought to be curable through this bloodletting. It was considered cutting-edge therapy for the better part of two millennia. Think about that. 2,000 years. It was not until the 1800s when man began to make significant strides in medical science, that humans realized bloodletting was doing them no good at all. In fact, there's no way of telling how many countless people died unnecessarily from overzealous physicians who thought that bloodletting was going to purge them of toxins. Did you know that George Washington very likely died of excessive bloodletting when he was experiencing the symptoms of a, of a, of a high fever? Like so many other examples of worldly wisdom, bloodletting has since been replaced by other practical scientific theories and practices, no doubt some of which will also prove to be unfounded and inaccurate. This is the way of man's wisdom. I'm not trying to, to knock man's wisdom for this. This is just the way that man's wisdom is. It is the reality of how man thinks. The sophists, those who sought wisdom in Paul's day, no doubt, no doubt felt that their de declarations of wisdom were cutting edge, that their philosophical advancements were the pinnacle of human thought. To that point, no one had discerned or deduced more complex explanations of why man existed or man, where man came from. But within a few decades, so much of that sure Roman thought was already being disproven and displaced with new attempts at newing, with different forms of sophism. But in contrast, friends, godly wisdom, wisdom that comes from above, is from an omniscient being, a God who is not limited such as human beings are limited. 1 John 3.20 says, For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. This is only one of many scriptures that point to this amazing characteristic of the God we have come to worship today. He is omniscient. There is nothing that escapes his knowledge. It is one of the fundamentally unique things about God. And it is only true of him. God's all-knowing nature makes him powerfully different than us in a number of important ways. God is not opinionated. Whatever he thinks is codified fact. It is not speculation because God already knows all details of everything that occurs. He has never had an opinion 
Because opinions, by definition, acknowledge the possibility of misunderstanding. Theories? God can't have theories. He always knows. He knows exactly what is and what is not. His thinking is fundamentally different than ours. All things are plain before this omniscient God. A secret does not exist that has been kept from Him. The God we often treat as so far away. We, we often treat God like He's out there somewhere. But that God's knowledge is right in here. It is in the depths of who we are. It sees whatever we think we can keep hidden from the world. It is impossible for God to not know all about you, whether or not you call yourself a Christian. God is intimately aware of every detail of your being. To grasp his omniscience, we must go beyond the normal categories that the human mind thinks in. We've got to try to think with different technique, with different, with, with different uh, basis and perspective. Man's wisdom is a product of what he has experienced with his senses. All of our thinking is tooled to handle the income of data, which is then compared to previous data that we have ingested and then either confirmed or denied depending on our experiences and the evidence that's been presented to us. Based on all of that personal case law, we then make decisions and we act. That is how the human mind naturally works. But it is not so with God. He doesn't have to analyze all that we do, for He knows all things, and He knows exactly how it all fits into the great plan that He is unfolding before our eyes. This is why that which is practical appeals to man so much. We often get swept away with things that seem to work right now. They seem to be useful in the moment. We've settled for our human wisdom, which can only ever be an attempt at true wisdom. And as such, we instinctively know that we must abandon our wisdom when it is proven to be off or when it is proven to be incomplete. We value what works right here and right now. So when someone comes along and proves that bloodletting actually doesn't heal you, it hurts you in most cases, then man recognizes, oh, we got that wrong. That's how man thinks. They are theoretical. They make guesses, and then they have to adjust when they see that their guesses are offline. When we should value what works forever, when we should value what is permanent and lasting, we tend to, as people, value what works right here and right now instead. And so man rejects the notion, often, that universal truth can exist. Instead, man embraces the fundamentally flawed wisdom that he can conjure up in his own mind. Human wisdom can only hope to mimic in a very limited way the wise things that God has revealed to us. America is a great nation. I love this nation. But it is only a great nation in so much as it, in some cases, accidentally mimics the things that God says are true and good. The more we depart from the wisdom of God, the less we take into account the true things that He has revealed to man, the less glorious the nation becomes. <clears throat> God doesn't just know all there is to know about the moment either. He knows all that there has ever been to know and all that will ever be known. He already knows it right here and right now. Has worldly wisdom ever produced an explanation based on perfect knowledge of any subject matter? No, it has not. The wisdom that man can attain to on its own will ever be limited by the fact that man can only see a very limited portion of what's going on in the universe at a given time. And so it might be tempting to think of worldly wisdom as a kind of wisdom that gets progressively better, that over time, 
You know, all those theories that don't actually work get jettisoned, and then better theories are, are gained. And so man's wisdom is getting progressively better and better and better. But it would actually be wrong to think of, of man's wisdom that way. When we look at the track record of man and of man's knowledge and knowing, we see, in fact, the opposite. That because our wisdom is always tainted by the sin nature that exists within us, that we use whatever new things we discover to find new ways to sin against God and to dishonor His name. With the wisdom of man that is ever progressing, we have created bigger and better bombs, bombs that can blow up entire nations now. We have weaponized disease. Sure, we found some cures for disease, but we have also done heinous things in, 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 in the name of science that have wrecked whole populations of people. For the sake of unity, even right now, and equality, for the sake of equality, man is crafting a cancel culture that is radically judgmental and that is dividing people more than they've been divided in, in 50 years. So man's ever-improving wisdom is a fallacy. Man is limited and will always be limited. And so much as we turn away from the true and eternal things of God, our wisdom will be flawed. The greatest achievements of the mortal human mind have not come close to solving the real problems that we face in life. We need something greater. We need godly wisdom. Godly wisdom is not a wisdom that comes from this age. It also never, never comes from the rulers of this age. Now, when we read that, the title rulers often makes us think about kings, makes us think about governors. But that is not very likely what Paul is pointing out here. And the context of the 1 Corinthians letter will make that clear. Repeatedly in New Testament writings, the title rulers of this age was used to describe the most learned Jews who were well acquainted with the law. These are the ones who participated in the trial and therefore the crucifixion of our Lord. Time and time again, first Jesus and then the apostles pointed to the fact that the rulers of this age, meaning the, the scribes and the high priests and those who were in power and were supposed to know the most about God, these were the very ones that opposed Jesus the most ferociously. They were the leading minds among those familiar with Old Testament Scripture. And though they would have been cited by many as the ones who rule when it comes to spiritual knowledge, their behavior proved that they were not eternally minded. Whatever authority their human wisdom had earned them, it was soon to be abolished as time would wipe them away. Not so the Lord who reigns today. His wisdom is lacking and His authority will never end. To align ourselves with the rulers of this age in their fleeting wisdom is bad eschatology. For we know that the rulers of this age are going to, they're going to perspire, uh, expire. <laughs> That's the word I'm looking for. Perspire is not the word. They will probably also perspire, especially on days like we've been having lately. But they're going to expire. They're not going to be around forever. Good eschatology sees the eternal God and latches on to what he has declared and clings to what he has helped us to come to know. The wisdom that Paul shared with Corinth in which they are not expected and urged to stand, is a very different wisdom. Godly wisdom, in contrast to the wisdom of this age, is eternal. It will endure forever. Consider 1 Peter 1, verses 23 through 25. Peter says, You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. 
For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls. But the word of the Lord, what does it do? It remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Peter was sharing that to the churches in Asia Minor. Paul is sharing the same thing to the church in Corinth, that they must find themselves in love with the eternal word of God instead of being enamored and swept away with this popular, flawed wisdom of man. Now, if you're familiar with Scripture, you know that there is a judgment to come. That God is a God of love, but He is also simultaneously a God of truth, and those two things are not contradictory to one another. And this God of truth and love must punish wickedness. It was foreshadowed in the flood when the world was destroyed and enlarged by water. It will be fulfilled in completion at the return of Jesus Christ when fire is brought to bring destruction to the heavens and the earth. Very few things will survive that judgment. The heavens and the earth themselves will be purified and what will last? Two things we know for sure. The souls of men will endure either in the new heavens and the new earth through the grace of Jesus Christ or forever in condemnation through the damnation of hell. The souls of man will last forever. Think of how much time we spend on temporary stuff that matters so very little when all around us are the enduring souls of men and women who will spend an eternity either with the Lord or away from Him. Men and women who need to hear the gospel and yet we put our focus on stuff that matters zero in the grand scheme of eternity. So the souls of men will endure the judgment. There's one other thing we can say with great certainty will endure the judgment, and that is the Word of God. The Word of God will last beyond this age because the truths that it expresses to us are not just practical and for now, they are practical for eternity. God is everlasting, and His law does not change because He does not change. So that's the first unique characteristic of godly wisdom as opposed to man's wisdom. Godly wisdom is not temporary. But there's more to see. The kind of wisdom that we would classify as godly wisdom is also described here as secret. It is hidden in Christ. We see that in verse 7. Though the product of God's wise rule is all around us, we can see His creative power. We can look to the, the red sun this morning as I was here uh, to prepare the, the sanctuary with, with Paul. I looked out over the, sun, uh, the sunrise and I saw this just blood red sun and it just looks almost like we're on Tatooine or something. It was amazing looking. The things that God has made proclaim His creative power. But proper godly wisdom is not just objective data lying around for anyone to find. That which is truly wise is rooted in God Himself. And a person who is estranged from God due to their their sin does not have the capacity to know this kind of wisdom. Wisdom, true wisdom, is hidden in Christ. So if you do not have Christ, you cannot get to wisdom. (laughs) Hi, Ben. You good? All right. John 18, 20. Jesus answered to him, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all the Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. And he wasn't lying. Jesus preached the gospel broadly and widely. 
And yet it remained, though it was wide open to the people, it remained hidden to their blackened hearts. How is that even possible? Because they were not in Christ. Those who did not have a true faith in the Lord God, those who were not eternally minded and submitted to the reign of Yahweh and His redemptive plan could not see it, though it was plainly in front of them. According to Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of understanding. That's the beginning, the genesis of it. We cannot have good wisdom until there is a proper fear and respect for the Lord God. That fear and respect, of course, was dashed in the garden. When Adam and Eve partook of the one fruit they were told not to eat of, they decided to, 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 to break God's law, and in doing so, they were from that point forward going to figure out for themselves what was right and what was wrong. And from that point forward, manly wisdom, God, worldly wisdom was born, and it is, it is a, a shell of what true wisdom is. But you can't just go to a bookshelf and find godly wisdom. You need to be with God to know His wisdom. Now, I want to caution us here that this idea of secret hidden wisdom sometimes makes Christians think wrongly about the church. This passage is not dividing believers into two classes of Christians. This is very critical for us to grab. The spiritual Christian and the immature Christian is not the division that he is making here. Paul's not saying that godly wisdom is hidden from some believers, but is revealed or discovered by the more intelligent or the more educated, or the better loved by God Christians. That's not what he's saying right now. That kind of two-class view of Christianity would be extremely harmful to the church. And it has been harmful in past situations in God's church. Paul was already battling this a little bit, wasn't he? He was battling against these artificial divisions that human wisdom had brought into Corinth. There were people who were saying, oh, well, I like Paulus the best, so I'm going to follow after Apollos. And others were saying, no, Paul's teaching is the most reliable. So we're followers of Paul. And then others are saying, oh, I only listen to Christ. I, I don't listen to any other apostle. I just listen to the words of Christ. They were doing what the world was doing. They were dividing themselves. So Paul in no way right now is trying to create another division within the church by saying that there are some spiritual Christians and then there's these other Christians that just don't get it. These other Christians that they don't have the right spiritual gifts of wisdom and discernment. That's not what he's doing right now. If we let ourselves hold to this two-class definition of Christianity, it leads to other dangerous misconceptions within the church. Have you ever spoken to somebody and heard the term carnal Christian before? Oh yeah, we've got that, that brother or sister over there. You know, they love the Lord, but they're, they're carnal Christians. That means that they... They trusted Jesus at one point in their life. They put their faith in Him. Supposedly, they went forward, professed their faith. They maybe even were baptized. But then you look at their life and there is no evidence that God is truly in charge of that life. People have sometimes made a category of Christians and called them carnal Christians. Now, the term carnal is going to be used in just a few short verses here when we get to 1 Corinthians 3.3. Paul's going to warn the Corinthians that they are behaving in a carnal way. He uses the word sarkikoi, which is an adjective in the Greek to describe their behavior. But he doesn't call them categorically carnal Christians. And that's important. Recently in evangelical Christianity, it's been very popular to classify a person who, is, who claims to be a Christian, but whose behavior gives every indication that Jesus is not the Lord of their life as a carnal Christian. They would say they claim Christ, 
but they spend little to no time involved in church. They claim Christ, but they live in open, unrepentant sin. They claim Christ, but they, they live their lives as though they are their own Lord and King. Christ has no practical authority over them. Why would people believe that this is possible for a Christian? How can a person be a Christian and be in open, ongoing rebellion to the Lord God? There are a couple of things that motivate this kind of mindset. The first thing that people think of is because everybody knows a person who says, yes, I'm a believer, and yet does not walk with Christ at all. And our hearts that love that individual don't want to accept the idea that perhaps their profession is not a real profession. We want to believe deep in our hearts, they're still under grace, they're still okay, they're going to get it together, God's going to turn that ship around. And so we've created, I think, this category of carnal Christians to ease our own suffering because we're hurt so badly from the idea that they might not end up in heaven with us, with God. But in easing our own hearts, what does that categorization do? It contributes to their hopelessness. Because if we call them a carnal Christian, we just leave them out there as carnal Christians. There's no urgency to preach the gospel to them. There's no urgency to confront that sin. There is no true love that says, brother, sister, if you truly have the Holy Spirit within you, you, you ought to be bearing the fruits of the Spirit. Repent of that sin in turn. If you truly love the Lord God, treat Him like He's God. So if we make this category of carnal Christians and we believe that people can just walk around in utter disobedience, but because they prayed some prayer or they walked down an aisle that they're somehow covered by the blood of the Lord, then we are seriously misunderstanding the nature of what it means to be saved. The nature of our new identity in Christ. There's a second reason why people often claim that this carnal Christian is a reality. That's because we're so in love with our freedoms and liberties that it's hard for us to stomach a God who would take away some of those liberties. It's, it's about lordship. If God is seriously your savior, then he has every right to get into your life and to reveal to you the things that do not match his word and to then urge you to purge those things by the power of Jesus Christ. And yet, the independence of man, our desire for freedom and for liberty, wants us to develop a concept of God where he's okay with us just doing our th own thing as long as we let him save us. He doesn't need our glory or our worship. or He doesn't desire that. What he really just wants is to keep us out of hell. But friends, that, that is a product of our own pride. And that goes right back to the, the fall in the garden, that we want this independence, that liberty from God. When in reality, a true knowledge, a true godly wisdom cannot be attained until we find ourselves in the hands of that mighty God. The fact that the wisdom of God is a secret wisdom does not mean that God has hidden it from so-called second-class believers and revealed it only to special Christians. No. Paul is declaring that if you are Christ's, you have been given the capacity to know and love the things of God, which the unbelieving people of the world are completely blind to. They can't see them. Only Christians can see them. If you have repented of your sin and placed your trust in Jesus Christ, believing that it is only through His death and resurrection that you have been saved from the wrath that your sin deserves, then the capacity to know godly wisdom, regardless of your age, regardless of your level of intelligence, regardless of your education, the capacity to know godly wisdom has been given to you. You have it. 
You are no longer a carnal Christian. You've been made righteous with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We must concede that not every true Christian properly embraces this gift all of the time, right? There are times, perhaps even seasons in the life of a believer where laziness or deceit or discouragement can lead a Christian to behave in carnal ways. And that is why Paul is going to urge these Corinthians, don't behave in a fleshly way. Don't be carnal like the carnal world. But is is it possible? Ask yourself this question, church. Is it possible to be a part of a whole category of true believers who have been redeemed but live for years, perhaps even for the rest of their lives, negligent of the things of God and friendly to the, the sins of the flesh? It is not possible. Does every believer have the Holy Spirit? The Scripture makes it plain. Every believer has the Holy Spirit. What does the Holy Spirit do? We'll turn to Scripture and let the Scripture tell us what the Holy Spirit does. In 1 Peter 1, verses 1 through 2, Peter introduces this letter to his friends in Asia Minor. He says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. Did you see that? In the sanctification of the Spirit. This is not all that the Spirit does. But one of the Spirit's mightiest works is that He works sanctification in the life of the believer. Why? For obedience to Jesus Christ and for the sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. We see it also in 2 Corinthians letter, chapter 4, verse 18. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image, meaning that we are looking less and less like the people of the world, and we are looking more and more like the image of Christ our Savior from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So the Spirit is sanctifying us, friends. This glorious transformation is sanctification, and it comes from that third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit sanctifies. It is His job. He is doing it in believers. And so if you believe that by some loophole of grace, a person can pray a prayer or make a profession or even be baptized and then wander right back to the path that they were saved from and live there for years without conviction, without struggle, then you're ultimately saying that it is possible for the Holy Spirit to do His job, to to not do His job in the life of a believer. You're saying that you think that a Holy Spirit can fail. The Holy Spirit cannot fail. He will not fail. There are times when we struggle against Him. There are times when we grieve the Holy Spirit, but He will persevere, and He will overcome our sin. This is not only false to think that the Spirit can somehow dwell in a person and have no effect on Him. It is blasphemous to Him. So here in the 1 Corinthian letter, we will see Paul speak to these stalled Christians as though they can and should be advancing, not as though it is beyond their ability to do so. So while the wisdom of God is veiled to those who do not know Jesus, it is unveiled to all who call on His name in faith. And so we need to face the facts, friends. The wisdom of God is supernatural. It is beyond what man's highest mind can grasp on its own. The intellectual man will scoff at this. 
You'll tell this to a non-believer who is very intellectual, and they'll say that's exactly what some kind of make-believe religion would tell you to try to get you to believe in something that makes no sense. That's just religion's way of sidestepping reality. But that comes from a person who has placed human logic and reason on the highest pedestal of their life. Friends, it is possible for logic and reason to be an idol to you, to be in the place of God, to be the thing that you worship in such a way that, oh yes, I will come up after God, I will follow after Him as long as He comes up after wisdom and reason, as long as He fits all my man-made categories of what is best and what is right and what is good. And we are severely limiting what we know if the ceiling of what we can know is what man's mind can devise. We want to know God. Friends, we want to know God. And to know God, we've got to get beyond what we can figure out with our tiny little minds. We're trying to grasp onto something that is so much grander and greater than we can even imagine. So if we're going to let logic and reason be the cap on which we will know things, then we'll never see the supernatural. The Lord God has got to take us beyond that. That doesn't mean we abandon logic and reason. That doesn't mean that we just believe whatever people tell us. But we understand that there is a special knowledge, a godly wisdom that lasts forever. And friends, it has been revealed to us. It has been given to us in God's Word. We're going to see that in just a few minutes here. God's wisdom is not spitefully hidden. It is properly described as hidden because man has hidden his face from God. Man has chosen sin. And by choosing sin, he has brought shame upon himself and he cannot stand in the presence of God any longer. And so man has closed his eyes and turned his back on the wisdom that God preaches plainly to the world. We are blind to godly wisdom in so much as we are apart from God. And this godly wisdom is an unsearchable wisdom. Notice that it says in verse 7 also, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God. We impart it. You didn't just discover it on your own. It was imparted to you. God used the apostles and the prophets to give to us holy words that would endure forever, words that we would not come to conclusions on our own. The Bible is clearly not a human-written book. It is not a piece of man-made literature. It doesn't fit in the schema, in the mindset of man, because it doesn't glorify man. It again and again and again reveals the weakness of man. It again and again and again points to the greater superior wisdom and glory of God. We were dead in our trespasses and seeking no light when God reached through the darkness to take hold of us. Do you see the humbling nature of how this wisdom must be acquired? Someone has got to impart it to you. The Holy Spirit has got to awaken you before you can see it. And so wisdom in the pursuit of it is not a contest to see who has excelled and gotten the highest score on the biblical placement test. It is something that God gives graciously to His people in the measure that they need. So it is critically foolish to think, I don't need any teacher. Just me and the Bible and the Holy Spirit. That's all I need. Really? Apostle Paul says here that God is imparting this wisdom to us. And He's doing it how? He's doing it through the structures that He has declared and ordained. Friends, we need to learn from each other. We need to be humble. We need to be taught. Every preacher needs to be preached to. The Word of God must speak to every one of us. We cannot do this by ourselves because that's not how God intends us to do it. He has called us together to a blessed unity in the truth. And He will impart grace to us through His church, particularly through the men that He calls to ministry and to preaching. 
There are three more characteristics of godly wisdom, and I'm running out of time, so I want to talk about them briefly. And some of these we're going to hit on in more depth later on in the letter to the Corinthians. Um, We need to be aware of these things, and so we need to see that, thirdly, godly wisdom is decreed before time. It is not just discovered by the curiosity of man. Godly wisdom is decreed. You see the difference between manly wisdom and godly wisdom? Manly wisdom is what we have observed. It's what we have obtained. It is what we can figure out. But godly wisdom is simply decreed. We impart a secret hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. So true wisdom is not just an observation of the way that things came to exist. True godly wisdom is the intricate, carefully woven details of God's holy, exposed will. It is decreed before the ages, meaning that it is timeless, and it is declarative. I want us to think back. We think about that word declarative. It's not a word you use very often, I think. Think back to Genesis 1.1. What happens in Genesis 1.1? In the very beginning, what does God do? He declares. God speaks. And when he speaks, different things happen than when we speak, right? I'm speaking right now and nothing's just popping into existence. But when God speaks, things become. God breathes into existence. We call that ex nihilo, creation. He breathes into existence through his declarations what is true. And that is a power that no man yields. Only God can do this. Man's wisdom is observational, it is theoretical, but godly wisdom is determinative. It is wisdom with legs. It is being. Since Christ is the wisdom of God, it is the wisdom of God with life and with body. He lives out the wisdom. It is the the, uh, manifestation of godly truth right before our very eyes. And so here we get a glimpse of the power of God. His omniscience, His all-knowing quality, and his omnipotence, his all-powerful quality, must be understood together. God is not just a knower. He is also, by necessity, a doer and a beer. That is why his name, Yahweh, means I am that I am, right? And here's something that we can greatly rejoice in today. Godly wisdom is decreed wisdom, and much of that decree has been recorded and revealed to us in the eternal words of Scripture. And so we're looking at those very declarations right now as our Bibles are open before us. This is the decreed will of God. So much of the decreed will of God has been codified for us so that we can study it, so that we can read about it. And with the guidance of the Holy Spirit that now resides within us, we can embrace it. We can hide the word of God in our hearts that we might not sin against him. And that's just not the academic Christians. It's not just the Christians who who have the fabulous gifts. It's every believer can embrace God and know the Lord God because the Spirit is what gives us understanding. And the Scripture is what God has declared so that we can study it together. Psalm 93.5, Your decrees are very trustworthy. Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forevermore. So man's greatest curiosity cannot produce something as solidly real as reading one simple verse of Scripture. It is God's decreed will, It is forever true. And if it is decreed, it has an origin, doesn't it? It has an architect. All godly wisdom is that which emanates from God himself. Wisdom itself cannot be outside of God. And wisdom itself cannot be our God. We cannot worship wisdom. We must worship God and understand that true wisdom emanates from that God who is perfect and holy and good. 
Another feature of godly wisdom that we see and we want to examine this morning is found at the end of verse 7. But we impart a secret hidden wisdom of God which God decreed before the ages for our glory. That's a very interesting phrase, isn't it? For our glory. How is that so? Isn't godly wisdom for God's glory? Absolutely it is. Absolutely. Godly wisdom reveals his character. It tells us what God is like. It tells us his perfect plan. It displays his amazing power. It it represents his love for us. But remember, the only way that we can know godly wisdom is to be united to God himself. The grace that saves us is a grace that binds us to him and to his glory. What a great glory it is for you to know and be near the God of all creation. Let us rejoice today, church family, that it is and has always been God's glorious design to produce and procure a people for himself. In God's perfect wisdom, he has determined to overcome man's rebellious heart through the redeeming work of the cross of Jesus Christ. So that instead of wrath and punishment that we earn by embracing foolishness and flawed wisdom of man, by doing violence to the truth, we have earned punishment. But instead, by God's grace, according to his beautiful will, we have received instead mercy. Mercy to draw near to him and to know the true God and to be exposed to his perfect glory. And so if your sin has been washed away, there is glory all about you. The glory of God is is showering down upon you. When before the glory of God meant your sure destruction and wrath, now the glory of God is your salvation and your preservation. It is for your glory, church. And one more observation as we draw near to the end. It is not so, um, so much a unique characteristic of godly wisdom as it is a consequence of it, but I'm still going to share it with you today. Number five, godly wisdom is something that the rulers of this age have not understood nor could they. The rulers of this age cannot grasp the wonder of this wisdom that we are here to celebrate this morning. Verse 8, none of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. This is a quote from Isaiah 64. And in this, Paul draws our attention back to the event that makes our grasp of godly wisdom even possible, the cross of Jesus Christ. It is through his suffering that our eyes can be opened once and for all to see the good things of God. And those worldly, wis- worldly leaders, those rulers who seemed on the outside to have an appearance of faithfulness, who seemed on the outside to be clean, but whose hearts inside were hardened to the things of God, who had built a throne upon which they have perched their own spiritual understanding and wisdom and have worshipped that as their idol. These earthly rulers are no match for what God has revealed to the people of God. They can't see it because they are not in Christ. It has not been revealed to them, and so it is foreign to them. It is, it is a mystery. And this mystery, it is Paul the Apostle's determination, this mystery is being revealed to the churches so that we might experience the glory of it, that we might worship God in his fullness. Had they been able to see what Jesus was doing, had they been able to understand his wisdom, 
They would have never crucified Jesus as they did, but they were completely blind to it. And so clearly this wisdom is far beyond the normal useful data that man apart from God considers wisdom to be. Can we, as God's people, handle what wisdom truly is? Are you mature to the degree that you can grasp and benefit from this secret decreed wisdom which stands, which transcends time, which stands the test of time and is hidden in the very Son of God Himself? Look again before we conclude at verse 6. It says, Young, Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom. Among the mature we do impart wisdom. In what way exactly is this wisdom for the mature? Those who would argue that there's a two-tier system in Christianity, that there are the mature Christians up here who know the secret hidden things, and then there are the other Christians that are saved, but they just don't quite get it. They're never really going to attain to the wisdom of God. They would argue that, well, the mature represents the top half of Christianity, that first-class Christian. But the word mature literally means perfect. It means complete. It means lacking nothing. If you don't take anything else away this morning, take this away. That if you are in Christ, you are mature. God has given you all that you need to know Him. The Holy Spirit now is in you. Can you grow in your knowledge? Absolutely you can. And you should. And you should strive after that because it's who you are now. It is part of your identity. But there is no two-class system in Christianity with those who know and those who just get by, by the skin of their teeth. The mature are those who are actually believers. Those who actually are complete in Christ. Every spiritual blessing, Christian, in the heavenly places has been given to you. You are complete in Christ. In Christ you are more than conquerors. Nothing can oppose you or dispel you. You are complete in Christ. You have been granted a secure inheritance that you will surely be given because you are secured in Christ and guaranteed by His blood. You have the mind of Christ, which we will get into shortly in just a few weeks here. All of these are present tense blessings. So church, we must stop living in the expired tense of being slaves to sin. We must stop living in the dead manner of thinking that held us captive until our Redeemer came from us and cast out our foolishness. What a rare gem this godly wisdom is. What a pearl of great price that we should seek after. And to see its value, our whole understanding of wisdom must be changed by the inner working of the Holy Spirit. So come back next week, church, because next week the Apostle Paul is going to help us to focus on the role of the Holy Spirit in our receiving and applying the godly wisdom that only He can give. I hope you're excited to hear more about that. Let's bow our heads and pray. I thank you, God, for this service that we were able to have today. And we pray for our brothers and sisters who were not able to join us. I pray that they will listen to the MP3 and get a sense for this difference between worldly wisdom and godly wisdom. I pray, Lord God, that, uh, that you were able to move me out of the way and speak with the Holy Spirit in such a way that my brothers and sisters here can receive this and understand it. And that you might give us a, a clearer picture of who you are. We have the tools, Lord God. Let us not believe the lies of the deceiver who might get us to believe that because we are not intelligent like our brothers, we're not educated like our brothers, we're not uh, fast of speech like our brothers, that we can't know these things. It's just not true. Lord God, we are complete in you. We don't need our mind to be good. We need the mind of Christ to be good. And you are happy to give us the mind of Christ. 
So change the way we think, Lord God. Bring us near to you, for true wisdom can only be found in your presence. Thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.